Father, we come as your people now, and uh, we eagerly anticipate what you would have us learn from your word. Lord, I pray that um, for any of us who can't sing that song, it is well with my soul, Lord. I pray that by the end of this morning, Lord, that you will have done the work in our souls so that we'll be well with our souls. Lord, would you open our eyes, our hearts, our ears? Would you help us to understand what it is you're saying to us? and know what it is you want us to do with it. We thank you for your goodness, and your faithfulness, and your gentleness. We thank you for your great love that pursues us, that, that chases us down and changes us. Lord, uh, help us to know your love better this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, we were looking at 1 John chapter 2, and I'd like you to turn there. If you're looking in a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1021. If you brought your own Bible, it's pretty easy to find. You go all the way to the last book, Revelation. You work your way backward through Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John. John. 1st John chapter 2. And uh, two weeks ago, we were looking at how, how John echoes the words of Jesus, calling us to love each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, with the same kind of love that Jesus has for us, which is a self-sacrificial, a giving, a selfless love. Now, that was a high calling, and with it came a stern warning, and that's how we ended two weeks ago. I just want to read those last few verses, 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in that that stern, strong warning, very much on the confrontation side, the challenge side of the pendulum, John is telling us, he's saying, wake up, you guys. If you, if you claim to be in fellowship with God, in friendship with God, and yet you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're, if you're even hating your brothers and sisters in Christ, John says, you're fooling yourself, that your eyes are blinded. You think you're in fellowship with God, but you're not. Because the vertical love for God and the horizontal love for each other are necessarily linked. You cannot unlink them. Now today, as we get into the next part of chapter 2, that pendulum is going to swing strong over to the invitation side. John is going to speak as a loving spiritual father. He's, He's going to speak to us as his beloved children. And then he's going to talk to us about our enemy. So I wonder, who is your enemy? If you've got something to write with, and maybe you got your bulletin, just go ahead and write down the answer to that question. Who's your enemy or what is your enemy? How would you answer that question? Maybe you're thinking in a real general term, or maybe you've got some specifics, like you've got a name or a face, <laughs> maybe you're glancing sideways at the person next to you, right? Who is your enemy? Maybe it's somebody who's hurt you in the past, and you just, you, you, it seems like you can't get over it. It just, it haunts you. Maybe it's somebody that you're in competition with at work. Uh, maybe it's a, a neighbor who just, you know, keeps 
messing up your yard, you know, whatever it is, who is your enemy? If I ask the question, who's your enemy when it comes to the idea of spiritual growth or becoming a mature Christian, that would focus us in a different way. We have an enemy. We actually have multiple enemies as we talk about our spiritual growth. And John's going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, he's got kind, loving words for us. Words of encouragement. First John 2, 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you're reading that out of your own Bible, it's probably set off as a different uh, formatting because it's poetic. It's maybe even a, a song that was sung that was familiar to these guys. We, we're not really sure, but it is definitely arranged in a poetic way. Now, we're going to dismantle that poetic uh, layout of it. Instead, we're going to put it into a chart in order to try to understand better what is being talked about here. But as we look at it in general, I don't want you guys to get too hung up on the fact that he's addressing young men and fathers. Everything in here could be applied to both men and women. On the other hand, I think it's really important that he is singling out. He's pointing this towards the men. So, guys, I want you to pay attention. I want you dozing off. I want you to hear what the Apostle John has to say he was the beloved disciple closest to Jesus as a young man. He's going to speak to young men. As an older man, he lived in exile, basically starving to death on an island in the Mediterranean. He's had a whole, a whole spectrum of experiences as a follower of Jesus. And here near the end of his life, he wants to say some things to us guys. So let's look at how we have it put together as a chart here. We're going to see this chart multiple times. Basically, he goes through twice. He says, children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. And instead of um, going in chronological order here, I've just put them together so we've got the first instance in the left column, the right instance, or the second instance in the right column. So as far as children, he says, children, I write to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He reminds us, all of us. That's the idea of the children. Like he's writing to men and women, young and old and in between. All of these people, these Christians that he loves, he's writing to them and by extension to us. He says, I'm writing to you little children. Some of you, you don't feel like a little child. Right? That's long past. But John looks at you and says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. That's a good reminder we sometimes forget that. We sometimes doubt that. Even if we've been walking with Jesus for years, we can screw up in a way that makes us think, man, I, oh man, how could God forgive that one? Right? Some of you, you've got a memory in your head right now of something that, and when you, when you did that, when you said that, you thought, mm, I might have just blown it for eternity. That's so bad. And yet the truth is, if Jesus has forgiven your sins, 
They are all forgiven, past, present, and future. You cannot take God by surprise. Even in the future, you can't surprise Him. He already knows the future, and He has forgiven you completely, past, present, and future. We find a reference to this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing instead of John. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, that's a way of saying sins, and uncircumcised of your flesh, that means not yet in the family of God, God made alive together with him, having forgotten, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Notice, Paul tells us all our trespasses are forgiven. We were dead in our sins. We were spiritually dead, but God made us alive through Christ, and he forgave us all our sins. That even includes that worst one that haunts you. That even includes those that are in the future that you haven't even thought up yet. How did he do it? Verse 14 says he canceled the record. He forgave the debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Now, it's not like God printed out a giant list of all of our sins and nailed it to the cross. No, this is a a poetic way of saying all of our sins are put on Jesus and he is nailed to the cross. He becomes our sin, as the Bible said, so that we can be forgiven. So how many of your sins are forgiven? If you're in Christ, all of them. Praise Jesus for giving himself to forgive all of our sins. Let's go back to 1 John. Verse 12 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So why did God forgive you? Yes, he loves you, but it's bigger than that. He did it for his name's sake or for his glory, for his reputation. John is practically echoing Isaiah 43, 25 here where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So God's forgiveness of our sins, yes, it is motivated by love for us, but It's also selfish on his part, not selfish in a sinful way. God does not sin. But if God is who the Bible says he is, he's the creator and the ruler and sustainer of the whole universe, that that everything is ultimately about him, then it makes sense that our forgiveness is also ultimately about him even more than it is about us. That God's glory, God's fame, God's name would be magnified in his people because of his forgiveness for our sins. That's what John is saying here, that it's about God, God's glory. Remember, last week we talked about how our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in Versailles and around the world. And what's the main point of that statement? It's the glory of God. We do that by making disciples, but it's about God. It's not about us. All right, so back to 1 John. If we take the first statement to the children and the second statement to the children, we have this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So when he comes back to the children, he talks about them knowing the Father, meaning our Father in heaven. How can they know the Father in heaven? Well, it's only because of the things that he said first to them. Their sins are forgiven. If your sins are not forgiven, you cannot be in relationship with the Father. Now, our world is full of all kinds of religions, thousands and thousands of religions. And they all have their own deities. Maybe it's a single god, maybe it's a whole bunch of different gods and goddesses, but they all have a system that tells you how to be good enough so that you can somehow be accepted by this god or these gods and goddesses. Christianity, though, stands alone in a couple ways. It says, one, there is only one God. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that there's only one way to know this God. So Christianity says all of those other religions, they are wrong. They are deceptive. Jesus himself in John 14, 6 through 7 says this. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And notice the exclusivity of this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, except through me. We live in a pluralistic, relativistic society, and the words of Jesus do not sit well with most of our society. Most of the world would say, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, we probably all worship the same God anyway, we hope it gets sorted out in the end, but Jesus stands firmly against that and declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Our world would say, what's your truth? What's my truth? And Jesus would say, who cares what you think your truth is? I am the truth. You're trying to find your way in life. I am the way. You're trying to connect with some higher power. that you... There's only one. It's the Father And the only way to him is through me, he says. All right, let's move on to fathers. He kind of does this out of chronological order. Young kids, fathers, young men, right? But he, he goes to the fathers next. And he says the same thing in both instances to the father. He's writing to the fathers because they know him who is from the beginning. He says it twice. Now, I don't think it's because he just couldn't think of something better to say the second time, or that it's just a a poetic way of anchoring the middle of these six statements. I think he's trying to remind and drive home in the hearts and minds of these fathers what is most important. He says to them, you know him who is from the beginning. Now, when he's writing to the fathers, he's probably writing to men who are in their late 20s on up. So people tend to get married earlier, have kids earlier. The young men section is probably late teens, early 20s. The fathers is probably everything else on up the spectrum. He himself could be in his 70s when he's writing this, older than most of the people that he's writing to. And yet he says there's someone who's been around a whole lot longer 
than even me, old John. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. Speaking of the eternal truth. And God has always existed. Dads, grandpas, do you feel pressure to lead your families well? Of course you do. Do you want your kids to grow to know and love Jesus? Do you want them to be responsible, upstanding citizens? Do you want them to be hard workers? Do you want them to be respectful? Do you want them to to make you proud? Absolutely. John is reminding us here of one of the truths of, of fatherhood. That is, who you are is more important than what you teach your kids. Right? John could have said anything. He said, I'm writing to you, fathers, so that you do a better job of teaching your kids. No. Instead, he gets to their heart and he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And so dads, granddads, I would ask you, do you know God? I don't mean do you know about God? Do you know of God? Do you know some Bible verses, some facts about God? I mean, do you know God? Because in your leadership of your family, you can run a tight ship. You can teach your kids to be hard workers, to be responsible, to be respectful, all those things. You can teach your kids to live lives that honor God, and yet if you do not know God yourself, they're going to see through that. You're going to say, Dad is telling us to know God, to love God, to, to center our lives on God, but I don't think that's true of Him. They will see through that. Do you know God? And are you growing in your knowledge of and in him? He moves on to the young men. This last category, probably late teens, early 20s. This age group tends to be the troublemaking age group. Right? Now, I, I just don't just mean like getting in trouble at school. I mean, think about our world and the messes of our world. Most of the violence Most of the lawlessness, most of the evil in our world tends to be perpetrated by young men. John's going to write to these young men, this age group, and he's going to say some very direct things to them. He knows there's a lot at stake here. Now, he's writing to Christian young men, but he knows that they're still in danger, like they're Their hormones are going, they're at the peak of their physical strength, their minds are still trying to figure out how things work in the world, they're easily swayed off into crazy ideas. Young men, you you know what it's like. Older men, you remember what it's like. Think about last summer with all the BLM and Antifa riots. Most of those images in your mind, they're young men, right? Right? In fact, one of the things that is most curious about the January 6th fiasco at the Capitol is how many older men were involved and were seemingly playing leadership roles. That is not normal in those kind of civil unrest things. It's usually the younger men. So he's going to do some more poetic wording, some mirroring here. He says four things about the young men. The first and the last are the same. They're like bookends. It says, you have overcome the evil one. 
So I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's quite a statement. The evil one meaning Satan, the devil, God's arch enemy. He says to the young man, to the young man, you have overcome the evil one. So I don't know if any of you wrote Satan or the devil or the evil one when I was asking you who your enemy is, but definitely he is your enemy. He was the highest of angels, rebelled against God, took a third of the angels with him. They're now called demons. They are in rebellion against God, and they want to destroy you. They are your enemies. And yet, John can say here to the young men, you have overcome the evil one. Now, he's not speaking to all young men. He's speaking to young men who are in Christ. That if you have been saved by Jesus, young man, you have overcome the evil one. Not by anything that you did, but by Christ doing the work in you. So if we look inside the two bookends, you've got overcome the evil one, overcome the evil one. Inside, we get the answer to the question of how is this possible? How did they actually do it? Well, we're told two things, that they're strong. Now, he's not talking about physical strength. They're probably physically strong. They're at the top of their game physically. Right? I think, think of Joe Brandt. I was really hoping Joe was going to be here. I was going to bring him up on stage and have him demonstrate for us. But Joe's probably the strongest guy in our congregation, right? Joe could, can not only bench press more than anybody else in here, he could probably take one of these benches with some of us on it and bench press, right? Now, Joe, he is strong. That physical strength is fleeting, though. Now, he's been learning that lesson. He did something that really messed up his back, and it's getting better, but for a while, it was really bad, and then he injured his knee, and so he's kind of hobbling around. So, strongest guy in the church, right? Yet he's reminded now, as a young man, he's reminded that that physical strength is temporary. It is fleeting. And some of you are saying, yeah, you just wait, buddy, right? It's coming, right? John's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about spiritual strength. John really doesn't care how much these guys can bench press. He wants them to be spiritually strong and mature. So he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And then how did they get strong? The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Now, if you're new to Christianity, if you're investigating Christianity, you might think, this is weird. Is he saying that if I read a 2,000-year-old book, I will get strong? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm writing to you, young man, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, you've overcome the evil one. How do you get spiritually strong? One of the main things is through the word of God. Now, it, John's not just saying read the word of God. He's saying the word of God abides in you. It lives in you. So you can't just read it in one ear, out the other. You have to ingest it. It has to get inside of you. Maybe that's memorizing it. Maybe that's journaling about it, studying with others, repeatedly reading the same thing over and over. Just 
getting it inside of you so it's abiding in you, that will make you strong. Some of you have committed to memorizing passages of Scripture and you have learned this truth that it makes you stronger when it abides in you. John knows that. He wants to remind the young men of that. As a young man, they face all kinds of challenges. One of the primary challenges, temptations for a young man, is sexual immorality. You guys know this. How can a young man fight sexual immorality? How can he be strong against temptation? The Word of God abiding in him. If we go back all the way to Psalm 119.9, we actually have this in a question and answer form. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, speaking to God, his word. So the world wants to entice you, young men especially, wants to entice you into sexual sin. It wants you to be filled with guilt and shame. It wants to destroy your marriage and your family. He wants to knock you down. The world wants to destroy you. The world wants you to walk a path of sexual sin and sexual regret. The psalmist says, how, how can a young man avoid that? How can he walk in a path of purity? He guards it. He guards that path of purity with the word of God. Now, our last section in First John passage today is going to deal with the idea of the spiritual battle again, but it's going to talk about a different kind of enemy. The Bible tells us that God exists in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's also this unholy trinity that shows up in the Bible. There's the Word, the flesh, world, the flesh, and the devil. So Satan or the devil, it's easy to understand. The Bible says he's prowling around like a lion, ready to eat us. Your flesh, your body, your, your physical desires are always pushing you for satisfaction for longing, for pleasure. But what about that third one? The world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. As I think about our church family, my family, myself, or especially as I think about maybe all of American church, I think of those three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think probably the most dangerous one to us right now is the world. In fact, I look at my life and I think, Satan doesn't even have to try hard, right? Because between my flesh and the world, I do a pretty good job of rebelling against God all on my own. Like, Satan, just take the day off. You don't need to worry about it. I got this. I'm going to mess it up, right? John's going to write to us here about the world. In America, we have a problem in the church. We don't look very different from the world. In almost any way that you can measure it, we look more like the rest of the world than we look like Jesus. The way that we think, the things that we think about. We primarily, you know, if we're not working on our job or anything, if we're just, just got some downtime, we're mostly thinking about how do we please ourselves? 
How do we get more comfort, more pleasure, more satisfaction? We're always pointed at ourselves, just like the rest of the world is. When it comes to how we spend our money, we basically spend our money the same way that the world does. We're always looking for ways to make ourselves more satisfied, more happy. If you're looking for a better job or looking to get a raise or you're figuring out how you can cheat on your taxes so you can get more money, so you can buy more things that you think will make you more happy. In fact, you might have a list right now in your mind of things that if you had an extra 10000 bucks, you would just go buy those this afternoon. You just always have this list going. You're always ranking it, and then and when you got a little extra, go get it. That's the way our world works, and yet that is the way so many of us work also. It's about us. Our charitable giving, we are generally more charitable than the world, but it doesn't look anything like the New Testament. Of all those who claim to be Christians in the United States, 6% Give a tithe to the church, that is, give 10%. 6%. The church in America would be completely transformed if we would take that seriously. Worldliness, this idea of being like the world, makes it impossible for us to be generous as God calls us to be. Talk about divorce. Divorce rate in the church is a little different than the divorce rate outside the church. Sexual immorality, the same thing. Cheating on our taxes, lying, lying politicians who claim to be Christians. I mean, it's, no matter where we look, the way we raise our kids, there is great pressure on parents today, right? Parents, you know this. There's a certain definition of what a successful kid, therefore what a successful parent, looks like. And you feel great pressure from the world. As you're going to, you know, Cart your kid all over the place, get them involved in all these things and make sure that they're doing everything possible to be successful in however the world defines success. And you will sacrifice all kinds of things. You'll sacrifice dinner together as a family. You'll sacrifice weekends. You'll sacrifice money. You'll sacrifice your time. You'll sacrifice being together with the people of God on Sunday morning. You will, you will set all kinds of things aside in order to help your child become what the world says your child should be. Yet if you look at what we're producing in general as young adults, we have to wonder, are our standards all wrong? What if the world has entirely duped us and what we are running after and pouring ourselves into in order to get our kids to become this? What if it's all misguided? Not exactly what God wants. So let's look at these last three verses here. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, he's getting strong again on us. Now, he's not talking about loving people, individuals, all right? The Bible is clear. Not only does God love people, but we are called to love people. You think of the most famous verse in the, in the Bible, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So God loves people. That's one meaning of the idea of the world. But that's not what John is talking about here. He's, he's not talking about, he's not saying don't love the people of the world. That's not what he's saying. He's also not talking about the rock that we live on. He's not saying don't care for the earth. He's not concerned about that at all. 
Now, if he saw the way that we think of, you know, Mother Earth and other pagan ideas of talking about the Earth, the way that we worship at the, the, the altar of environmentalism in our country today, he would probably have some, say, some things to say about that. But it's not on his radar at all here. He says, don't love the world. He's talking about the sinful, I mean, sin-saturated system that we live in, the broken world that we live in. He says, don't love that. Don't love the world or the things of the world. He goes on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So two weeks ago, we were looking at um, ways that we can have assurance of our salvation. So if this is true about you, then that assures you that you really are in the family of God. John's doing that again here, but he's doing it in a negative sense. He's saying, if this is true about you, you should not have assurance. You should not be relaxed and thinking that you're okay. If anyone loves the world, the broken system of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, do you love the world? Or what he said earlier in the verse, the things of the world? The house, the car, the success, the power, the wealth, the comfort, the vacations, perfect family. Do you love those things more than you love your king? John says, then you're not in the kingdom. Who you think your king is? Because there's not enough room in you to love the world, the things of the world, and to love God. You just don't have the capacity to do it. I think about Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, so the guys who've left everything to follow him, he says this to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus is saying, you can have the world. You can even be king of the world and lose your soul. Or you can give up the world. You can take up your cross daily and follow him. You can belong to Jesus. Again, exclusive claims from Jesus. Remember, he's the way, the truth, the life. Here is the way and the truth and the life telling you the way and the truth and the life. You can love the world, but you can't love God at the same time. Back to John. He's going to get a little more specific. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, and he's going to say what he means by that, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he names three things. Two of them are kind of outward. One of them is inward, right? So the desires of the flesh. I want what I want, and I want it now. I want comfort, I want pleasure, I want satisfaction, I want to feel good. If you, if you listen to any popular music today, it doesn't matter what genre it is, but any popular music, almost every song is about the desires of the flesh. This is what I want. 
You are what I want, right? It's all about the desires of the flesh. The next, desires of the eyes. Similar but different. We see something and we want it. So somebody else has it and we want it. Somebody else got a new car, I want a new car. My best friend got a new phone, I want a new phone. Best friend got a new boyfriend, I want a new boyfriend, right? The eyes are constantly saying, I see that, I see that, I see that, and I want it. When I was a young man, uh, one of my favorite bands was a, a band called the 77s, Christian alternative rock band in the early 90s. And uh, one of my favorite songs of theirs is based on this scripture. The verse goes like this. Well, I see something and I want it. Bam! Right now, no questions asked. Don't worry how much it costs me now or later. I want it, and I want it fast. I'll go to any length, any sacrifice, all that I already have, and all that I might get, just to get something more that I don't need. And Lord, please don't ask me why. Then the verse, or the chorus. The lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the life right out. The last thing, the pride of life is more internal. Look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at the good job that I'm doing. Look at what a great employee I am, what a great boss I am, what a great spouse I am, what a great kid I am, what a great player I am, whatever. Just look at me. I am awesome. We want people to think that about us because we think that about ourselves. Now, these three motivations, the these three traps, where do they come from? John specifically says, they don't come from your father. He doesn't trap you. They come from the world. They are worldly. Every one of us in this room is being duped to some degree by the world. I pray that today it's become a little clearer for you how you might be being fooled by the world, being trapped by the world. John goes on in verse 17 to finish it up here. He says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he says, The world is temporary. The world is dying. The world has an expiration date. So all the stuff that you want to chase, all those accomplishments, they're temporary. The status, the ranking, the piles of stuff, it is all passing away, John says. And he doesn't say that to discourage us. He says that so that we can then invest in eternity. We can pour ourselves into what does last, what does not have an expiration date. That is, specifically, doing the will of God. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away. Sounds just like John. But my words will not pass away. The physical universe has an expiration date. It's going to end. It's going to be unmade. The Bible tells us there will be a new heaven and a new earth. They will be perfect. But the words of Jesus will remain forever. It's Jesus' claim here. My words will not pass away. So we might want to ask, which words? 
Matthew 22, verse 37. It's familiar with you, to you guys because we've talked about it a lot the last couple weeks. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Since that's the greatest commandment. These are some of the words of Jesus that will not pass away. And just like John keeps bringing it back to love, Jesus here brings it back to love. John says you can't love the world and the things of the world and love the Father. Jesus says love the Lord your God with everything you are, everything you have. It all keeps circling back to love. If you're feeling some conviction, some challenge, feeling, man, I'm really kind of failing in these areas, I need to change, I need to move in this direction, that's good. Let me encourage you, though, with the love of God here. Just as you can't do anything to save yourself, ultimately, your transformation into a more spiritually mature follower of Jesus is the work of God in you. It's His love working in you. The love of the Father is the key in both directions. The love of the Father to you is your strength, is your ability to make any kind of lasting changes. His love for you is what does it. And your love back to the Father is your way of prioritizing Him. So as we get ready to share in communion, as we remember the loving act of Jesus where he gives up his life and, and a few hours before that he says to his best buddies, I'm, I'm done here. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Remember me as you take this meal. As he's doing that, as he's loving them to the end, as John would say in his gospel, as he's washing their feet, as he's serving them, as he's serving the meal, as he's offering himself as a sacrifice, it's all out of motivation of love for them and for us. He calls us to respond to that with love for the Father. So as we get ready for communion, we're going to take a moment to pause and reflect. And I would like to suggest that your, your topic of reflection be the love of the Father. Maybe it's His love for you. Maybe it's your love for Him. But think on these things. Let it go deeply into your heart. Evaluate yourself. What are you loving? Do you love the world and the things of this world? Do you love the Father? Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to change? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for these hard words and these encouraging words. Lord, I pray that those who are feeling exhausted and worn out from trying and doing harder and all, Lord, would you, would you comfort them now in this moment of reflection? Would, would you help them to see your great love for them? Would you help them to see the, and remember the sacrificial love that Jesus showed by giving his life so that we could be with him. Lord, for those who, um, and we, we have heard clearly the challenge to not love the world and the things of this world, would you 
Would you show us the truth of our prioritization of our, of our lives? Would you set us free from the trap that this world has set? Or would you make us a people that's holy, that's different, that's peculiar in the world? Help us to see clearly your love for us. Help us to respond to that love with wholehearted love for you. We are wrought that, Lord. So we ask that you would be changing us, making us into a people that loves you more. In Jesus' name.